but even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning again. Good to see you all. Uh, and happy May Day for those who are excited about potentially leaving snow behind. Uh, we made it. Uh, it is May. And no promises on the snow thing at this point. And, you know, hedging all bets there. Uh, and to those who continue to celebrate this uh, church calendar, this is the third Sunday of Eastertide, so he is risen indeed. Uh, again, I'm Clay, I'm a pastor here, and since Jamie brought it up, yes, I was in a death metal band, but I'm not going to try to get the kids to do a mosh pit, so that's, I don't do that anymore, okay? <laughs> uh, but it's my privilege to hear and speak uh, God's word to you, really more to hear it with you. Uh, he is the one who speaks his word, and so it's a privilege to come studying the word. We're in a mini-series here. We have three weeks on fear, and then we're actually going to do another two-week mini-series on gifts, spiritual gifts, and that should close the gap uh, from our previous series through to the summer in the Psalms, which is our custom. And so last week we looked at fear over things, right? What if we don't have what we need? What, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? That anxiety. And Jamie showed us uh, through the Word of God that we must seek first the kingdom, and all these will be added to us. However, in this discourse, uh, another famous discourse in Matthew, the last one was the Sermon on the Mount, probably the most famous of all. Here we are in Matthew chapter 10, the missionary discourse. This is Jesus' words to his disciples, to those who are seeking the kingdom, proclaiming the kingdom, going forth. And he warns us very emphatically that when we seek first the kingdom, something else is added to us. That is enemies. So what about fear of others, right? Everyone has a them, right? We, that's maybe the, the most potent fear we know, the one we, that uh, visits us the most often. is we're, we're most, We lock our doors at night not because we're afraid we're you know, not going to have what we need because we're afraid of them, right? And so we see here these, in Matthew chapter 10, these first four verses, Jesus commissions his 12 disciples, the 12 apostles they then become, as ones who are sent. That's what that word apostle means. And then he spends through 15, giving them a very specific mission to Israel at the time, to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And their first and foremost task is to proclaim the kingdom. They are given powers to heal the sick and cast out demons, but the first thing, the first instruction to them is to proclaim his kingdom. And then he spends right up to the beginning of this verse, 16 to 24, saying, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. And he says, for, beware, over and over again, this refrain, beware of men. Why? Because they will beat you, they will interrogate you, they will deliver you over to rulers to answer for yourself. Uh, you, you will have enemies of your own household, he promises. As, as parents will turn against children and vice versa, they will deliver you over to death, you will be hated by all. And the one who endures to the end will be saved. He says, flee when you're persecuted to the next town. All of this beware. 
And then he says, but have no fear, right? At this point, at our, at our verse we come to here. So we have this interesting tension in this passage. Beware, but have no fear. How are we to have no fear in the face of such uh, danger and violence promised to us, right? And, and what I hope we see from this passage this morning is that Christ is not ashamed to proclaim us to his Father. And so we ought to proclaim him before others. And he gives us three reasons why we need not fear, one to do with them, one to do with God, and one to do with ourselves. First, they don't have the last word. Second, God is the almighty judge. And third, you are precious beyond compare. So as we see these things and as we study these things, let us pray to our God together. God, would you speak to us? Would you speak comfort to us? We who so often fear, sometimes for no good reason at all, and sometimes for very good reason, would you be our comfort in such a times as these? Would you remind us that you are with us, you are for us, you have gone the path ahead of us, and you are walking with us now. We pray for Jesus' glory. Amen. Uh, there was an early church father named Polycarp. No, that is not the name of a Pokemon, even though it sounds very much like one. Uh, it's a very funny name, but he was a disciple, we believe, of the Apostle John himself. This is very early, so he was born in the first century and would be ministering into the second. Uh, he was a martyr. Uh, he was called to die for his faith. Uh, the martyrdom of Polycarp is actually one of the, the most ancient documents of Christianity that we have. And it reads, uh, at the moment he is before the proconsul, this is how it reads. The proconsul said, I have wild beasts here, and I will throw you to them unless you repent. But he said, call for them, for the repentance from better to worse is a change not permitted in us. But it is a noble thing to change from unrighteousness to righteousness. So he said to him again, I will cause you to be consumed by fire if you despise the wild beasts, unless you repent. But Polycarp said, you threaten the fire which burns for a season and after a little while is quenched. For you are ignorant of the fire of the future judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. Can you imagine saying those words <laughs> in that situation? Can you imagine the courage and bravery that would be needed? And what we see is this is not just the ancient church Roman persecution thing. There was different rulers in Rome, different waves of persecution, different, really all throughout history. There's been no era of history in which Christians were not dying for their faith. In 2019, 20 uh, Libyan martyrs were beheaded by a radical Islamic regime. Uh, they put it on film and sent it out. And they died saying, Ya Rabbi Yusuf, which means, my Lord Jesus. It's incredible. Um, this, is, this is something that always happens with Christianity. It's, it's not everyone's Christian life, right? Not, in fact, a very small minority of people are actually called to give up their lives, and yet, everywhere we go, we see uh, no matter where we are in history, no matter where we are in the world, uh, there are martyrs. Uh, there are people in every age called to 
die for the faith. Uh, this is exactly what Jesus has been talking about. A servant is not greater than his master, he says. If they called me Beelzebul, what do you think they're going to do to you? As his apostles would repeat, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I think one question that just is just simply why, <laughs> right? I mean, from our perspective, I think it makes a lot of sense to simply ask that question. We just, we've come with good news, right? We've, we've come proclaiming God's mercy. Uh, we're not here to, you know, take over anybody, although, you know, you can make an argument that Christians in various ages certainly have not uh, acted in line with that. But here, we, we don't see Jesus saying, oh, when you do the wrong things, they're going to come after you. You see, when, when you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Why would that happen? The worldly reason has a lot to do with power. So you remember, we looked at on Good Friday, uh, the trial of Jesus, and these sort of, the sort of reasoning that got them there was, well, he's claiming to be some kind of king, and so if you're really a friend of the powers that be, that is Caesar, you would oppose this man, right? It upsets the status quo, it upsets the powers that be. Think also of the apostles uh, in Ephesus, uh, when a, a riot is stirred up and they drag the apostles and they're saying, we've got to do something about these guys. This angry mob is basically going to turn into a lynching mob soon, although that doesn't happen in that particular story. But they're saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So there's this religious reason. And yet, they also just happen to add, by the way, a lot of our money comes from manufacturing idols for Artemis, right? So there's a, this threat that Christianity seems to pose to the powers that be. We're not just against the world, we know we're against the flesh and the devil, right? Our own sin causes us grief in this world. Uh, Satan and his schemes are against us. And as my southern pastor, back when I was in seminary in Charlotte, said, you know, no one's really going to come after you for being a Christian in this context, but when you, when you try to live a Christian life, it's kind of like you're trying to go up a greased hill on roller skates, <laughs> you know? Like it's just, the world is kind of set against it, Right? So what does it mean not to fear here? And again, I think we need to be realistic and thankful for our situation. We, do, we live in a persecution light context. There's some trends that trouble us, things we don't like about how religious liberty is going and so on and so forth. But it's not very likely you're going to come to church next week and find it burned to the ground, right? It's not very likely there's going to be an angry mob waiting for you tonight, right? These are realities faced by Christians in some parts of the world, even today. But here's what you will find, for all the same reasons, hatred, laughter, slander, dismissal. The, the, we don't talk about religious stuff here. I'm not religious, that's not for me. The, the look exchanged between friends, uh, kind of, this guy's delusional, right? That, that, that sort of thing. You're going to find, uh, we can't take the Bible that seriously, right? You're going to find a lot of that sort of thing. All that is considered persecution by God, by the way. Uh, it's not simply those who are called to be martyrs, but those who are reviled, he says, for his name's sake. Right? The Beatitudes, blessed are those, uh, when, blessed are you when people utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus says, have no fear of them. Right, we don't face the worst, but what if it was the worst? Jesus still says, have no fear. 
There's two nuances, I think. What's, let's, let's first say what's not being said by have no fear. It doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean you're called to recklessness, right? Because we just remember Jesus did just say, when you're persecuted in one town, flee to the next. Whatever do not fear means, it might involve running away, right? Be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Let's be smart about this. We're not going to run callously, throwing our lives away, trying to provoke persecution for some sort of victim complex we have. Remember, Jesus himself not only said to flee, but he did flee. There's several times in the gospel he was going to be killed before his hour had come, and he ran. Because his life wasn't nothing to him. He came to lay it down, but his life is valuable. We too are the fathers, are we not? Our lives are valuable. One of, what was one of Jesus' chief temptations? To, th- to throw his life away and put God to the test, right, by Satan. It's not just as though we were to say, well, our lives don't matter, just lay them down for no reason. Another thing it's not saying is uh, that all suffering is Christian suffering. Right? He also says, be innocent as doves. So, uh, you know what? People may not like Christians, but also not a fan of thieves, liars, right? They're not a fan of people that are arrogant and malicious and self-righteous and constantly provoking them all the time, right? So it's not our job to go around poking the bear and then baptizing that by saying, well, aren't I so noble for suffering for Christ? Maybe we're just suffering because we're a jerk, right? That's not, that's not to say all suffering is Christian. It's not that we're called to recklessness. Here's what we're called to, to proclaim the king, Come what may. He says, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. He also says, whoever does not take up his cross, not the sword, but a cross and follow me, is not worthy of me. We are those who follow a man who went to the death for us. And though they may threaten us with the worst, we are to proclaim our king. Now, where in the world are we going to get that kind of courage. Uh, Jamie duly and rightly pointed out to us last week that uh, this isn't a stop it, right? Do not fear, just knock off the fear, right? He does command us to, to not be afraid, but he gives us reasons. And actually, he gives us three do not fears here and three different reasons associated with it. So here's, here's where we can get our courage. Three do not fears and three reasons from Jesus. The first is this, if we look at verses 26 to 28. They don't have the final word. Let's read uh, again those, those verses. Have no fear of them, for nothing is hidden, or nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim in the housetops, and do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Do not fear. Now, this language, the nothing is hidden that will not be revealed, that that sort of language is language of the final judgment. It's, as Paul says, according to his gospel, when Jesus Christ judges the secrets of men, when every careless word is called to be accounted for, nothing will be forgotten in that day. Although for a a while it seems as though, right, the, the unrighteous can get away with things. There's nothing that's happened that has escaped God's sight. 
and it will be proclaimed on the housetops, right? It will be a, a matter of public uh, opinion. Everyone will know and see that the evil of the unrighteous will be exposed. In other words, we will be vindicated. You might think of the example in Exodus we saw from our series, but also if you were reading the book uh, of Exodus in a community group, that language where the people are suffering as slaves under, under Egypt's regime, right? And he says, it's, it says it's really striking, it doesn't, the Bible doesn't ordinarily maybe use this type of language, but it says something very striking. It says, God saw and God knew, right? It, it did not escape his notice. Although they did not see judgment, some people lived and died as a slave in that time, never seeing the vindication. But God saw and God knew. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, the, the verse we just read, vengeance is the Lord's. He will vindicate his people. He will proclaim, no, this, these are the ones in the right. These are mine. Whatever charges are brought against us in this world, whatever the re- record is set as by men, we can know this, Jesus will vindicate us on the last day. I want to think about uh, something we often hear as Christians. And it's a phrase that goes like this. You're on the wrong side of history. There's a couple presumptions at work in this phrase. One is clairvoyance, right? As if they somehow know how history's gonna turn out, right? They don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. We see certain trends, but we don't know how the final uh, story will turn out. Uh, and the other thing is that, do all things end well? In other words, just because that's how the story turns out is that good. People, right, before the rise of the Nazi regime, for example, those who fought against it were saying, hey, this is a bad idea. It turned out that history was against them. It turned out the Nazis did take over, and they did perpetrate what they were intending to do. Are those people on the wrong side of history? I think that's a, not a very wise thing to say. But if someone comes to you and says, do you affirm surgical intervention and hormone therapy for those who presume to be another gender than they are? And if you don't, you're on the wrong side of history. Don't you see the writing on the wall? This is where we're going. This is where progress is going. How can you say no? You're going to be laughed at. You're going to be thought a fool. I want to submit to you from the word of God this morning that even if people somehow set up a a regime that lasted a thousand years that taught this, that's not how history ends. We don't get to say how history ends. Christians don't get to say how history ends. The Alpha and the Omega does. The author of history. The God who made heaven and earth and will vindicate the righteous in the last day. And no, Christians, for certain, you're not on the wrong side of history. You follow a God who does all things well, who has made man male and female in his own image. You're not on the wrong side of history. Having that eternal perspective helps us see that. That's the first reason. They don't have the final word. The second reason is that God is the almighty judge. Let's just simply dwell in verse 28 for a second. See God the almighty judge. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Think of the perfection of this judge. Holy, just, good, he will by no means clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquities on those who hate them, on those who hate him. 
So our question is, first of all, and I think this is to maybe to a lesser extent in view here, but there is a sense in which who would you rather let down, right? Would you rather fear and acquiesce and give in to God and his goodness or on those who deny Christ? Right? We ourselves are to fear God, but I think, I think there's actually something different at work here because in just a second he's going to say, you are very valuable to God. He is your father, right? He loves you. You don't have anything to fear from him. Perfect love has driven out fear for us. Let's think of the story of another martyr for a second. The first one ever that we have recorded in the pages of Scripture, his name is Stephen. You can read about it in Acts chapter 7. And he's witnessing to his, his fellow countrymen, uh, people who have all the resources of God and yet are hostile to Christ and would kill his people before converting, before even letting them exist. It says this, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Think of how visceral this description is. They ground their teeth at him, but he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He entrusted himself, as his master did, right, to the Father. But what were his last words? Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Think of this story for a second. Who was Stephen more afraid of? in that moment. He wasn't going to stop proclaiming Christ for anything. He was afraid of God, yes, but he knew his spirit was entrusted to him. So what was his fear? Do not hold this sin against them. I want you to ask yourself this. On that judgment day, who will be most to be pitied? We spend so much time being afraid of the lost and not nearly enough time being afraid for the lost. Don't, you should not have any sleepless nights about the LGBT agenda, right? They're, they're doing damage and, and we should do all we can against it. But nothing is hidden that won't be revealed. Here's what should terrify us, that there's people on that day who are going to stand before God with filthy rags and say, look at my righteousness. Right? Jesus says that if you cause a little one to sin or you hurt one of my little children, Dragging you to the bottom of the ocean would be a mercy for you. Do you hear the vengeance of God? 
against those who do evil in this life. It is not a fate we should wish on our worst enemies. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do you know how that day is going to look for you? Those who profess Jesus Christ, you're going to come and you're going to say, I am a sinner, but I am clothed in Christ's righteousness. And Jesus, your advocate, will say, he is mine. And you will be welcomed and received into love forever. Friends, the lost have nothing. Be afraid of God for the lost, right? We are holding all the cards, right? It seems as though we're always pressed down and beaten. But we have every assurance from God that we will be his forever. What is their certainty? When God calls them to account, say, and what do you trust? They're false gods that they cling to that cannot save them, that are powerless? Do not fear the lost. Fear Fear for the lost. So they don't have the final word, and God is the almighty judge. Finally, you are precious beyond compare. Look at verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you have more value than many sparrows. Jesus says, this is your father's world. He knows the life of every bird in the sky. To people, this isn't worth very much, right? A penny, two for one. But to God, you're worth so much more. Notice throughout this passage, he, he speaks of his father or the father. Here he says, your father. The father sent his son to bring many sons to glory. That's the truth for you, Christian. Think how precious bought you are to him. What cost is he willing to put up with for you? He sent much more than a sparrow into the ground for you. His beloved son went to the grave for you. He sent his own son for you, who now advocates for you, who proclaims you to his father, right? What shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised and is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, our God. If he has set his love upon you, if you're united in Christ's death, 
seen as a son participating in his resurrection life, there's nothing you can lose that will not be restored. His promise to you from Mark chapter 10. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, sister or mother, father or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with, pers- with persecutions, note, and in the age to come, eternal life. That is his promise. There is nothing you can lose, not a hair can fall from your head that will not be restored to you. Right, so if we have that faith, if we have faith to see, they don't have the final word. The Almighty Judge does. And therefore, they are worthy of our pity. They are worthy of our witness. The word martyr actually means witness, by the way. Let us proclaim our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to finish with a reading. I'm always quoting this band, but I just keep writing good things. They're called My Epic, and uh, they're a Christian band. They write... They wrote these words. I'm still a young man, but so I think very little of death. Who really does till it's coming for them? And I know with each breath I come one closer. And they may dump my body in the sea and spread my ashes miles wide. It won't matter. All my parts will realign. They will rush to find each other when they hear their lovers cry. Death will be abandoned when he comes back for his bride. Saints are never buried. They are seeds planted who bring about a greater harvest when they burst forth from the earth that needed their fruits but it could never hope to make enough room for their roots. Death is swallowed up. It owns nothing in me. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful ones. Rejoice you are counted, if you are counted worthy to suffer loss, however small, however great for the kingdom of God. Because Christ proclaims you before his Father. We can proclaim him before others. They don't have the final word. God is the judge, and you are precious beyond all compare. Let's pray. God, would you give us courage? Courage not to lash out, but courage to reach out in love. Courage to proclaim you in the face of opposition, laughter, to be called fools. We know your gospel is foolishness to the worldly wise. We pray we would have humility to cling to you and nothing else. God, make our lives a story of witness, a living sacrifice poured out before you. We are yours. You have held nothing back from us. We pray we would walk in your ways and tell of the gospel to all those who are around us. Let's not be ashamed of the name Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.